0: Um, but we're going, to, uh, we're going to skip over what is a section, a very practical section, on deacons and elders. And we're going to go to the end of chapter 3 this morning, where Paul is bringing to an end some of the, uh, this practical instruction that he's been given about the, about the church. And we've been looking at that over these last uh, few weeks. He, he brings this to an end at the end of uh, chapter 3, and brings a kind of summary to us and to Timothy, of course. And uh, let's let's read from verse 14 to 16 and then we'll uh, we'll begin to to look into this this morning. Paul says in, in verse 14 to Timothy, Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Verse 14 and 15, Paul summarizes and brings to an end this uh, practical teaching that he's been given. And he does this by re-emphasizing to Timothy the true identity and nature of the church, and he's kind of underlining the importance of the things he's been saying. He says, "Timothy, the, the church that I've been instructing you about is the household of God. It's the church of the living God. It's the pillar and foundation of truth." And so, the the things that Timothy has been instruct, the things that Paul's been instructing Timothy in are not just kind of structural issues to make the church function well. They're not just management principles that ensure the smooth running of an institution or an organization. They are profound realities that are in fact embedded in the very nature of who God is himself. And as we've looked at the whole issue of the mystery of uh, male and female and how that reflects something of the Trinity and headship and submission and these issues. We realize that that is the case, isn't it? That these are realities that are profoundly rooted in the nature of the being of God Himself. And Paul is underlining to Timothy the importance of these things. That these, these things are truths about who God is. They're important because the church is the family of God. And in that sense, is there to reflect the nature of who God is to the world around us. They're important because we are the church of the living God. We're not a dead institution upholding the memory of a dead Jesus. We are a living, breathing body. Individuals who are made alive in Christ, filled with the living power of the living Spirit. They are essential because we are also the pillar and the foundation of truth. What an amazing thing to be true of us as God's people, with all our shortcomings and all our failures, that we are the the pillar and foundation of truth. Do you know that, friends? We are entrusted with reality itself for our generation. And so the things that Paul has been teaching are essential essential things that we really must get hold of and apply in our lives. But having re-emphasized this, Paul kind of takes a breath and seems to radically change track in in verse 16. And this is what we're going to focus on this morning. Because Paul, suddenly having spent a long time dealing with practical issues, breaks out in these statements of the glory of who Christ is. Statements about the mystery of godliness. Always in the back of Paul's mind is the glory of the mystery of godliness. The mystery of the object of godliness. Our devotion. Jesus Christ himself. And here, Paul just seems to quickly change track and starts to declare these mysterious realities about the glory of Christ. I just feel it's appropriate for us as we approach Uh, Christmas that we just spend time this morning reflecting on something of the glory of Christ that Paul emphasizes and declares in these verses. And then on the back of that, we're just going to move into a time of of worship and uh, and response to Jesus as uh, as we consider some of these amazing mysteries. We have here in verse 16, six statements about the glory of Jesus Christ. And it seems that Paul is quoting something that would have been familiar to the church. It may well have been some kind of confession that they would as a congregation have uh, verbally spoken out together. It may be that this is a a section or a portion of some kind of hymn or, uh, or, or song that was composed and that was familiar to them. But what's clear is that this is a a distillation of profound and essential truth that Paul and the church that Timothy is leading was was familiar with. There's a lot of thought gone into these statements. And behind these few words, there is profound truth about the nature of and the glory of who Jesus is. Truth that we need to be clear about, truth that we need to sing of, truth that we need to confess, and truth that we need to be declaring to our generation. There's another example of a, a, a kind of portion of Scripture like this in Philippians too, as well. And these may well have been songs that they would have sung together as a church about the glory of Christ. These statements declare the reality of who we believe Jesus is. They stand for the truth that we as the pillar and foundation of truth are called to uphold in our day and generation. And they describe something of the glory of Christ. So what I'd like us to do, we're going to do this um, before we worship at the end, is, is to read aloud these statements together. And then we're going to look one by one at these six statements. So if you've got an NIV Bible, it, it would be particularly helpful if you can read along with me. Let's... Um, Let's read verse 16 slowly and out loud together, okay? you comfortable with that? Can we do that together? It's good to declare these things. Let's, Let's read aloud together. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world was taken up in glory. Hallelujah. We're going to look at these six statements. The first one we're going to look at is a glory incarnate. He appeared in a body. Five very simple words, and yet they describe something that has confounded and stretched the greatest of minds through history. You know, Einstein spent a lifetime grappling with the theory of relativity. Well, grappling with the theory of relativity is nothing compared with grappling with the mystery of a glory incarnate, that he became flesh. We're going to have all eternity to try and get our heads around this reality of who Christ is. This is the mystery of godliness. He appeared in a body. And here Paul is describing how God Himself became flesh. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, who has for all eternity existed as a supremely independent, self-generating being. All-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful, equally present everywhere, at every point within the universe, all wise and perfect in His goodness and justice, in His mercy and His truthfulness. He, He appeared in a body. God became flesh. This is the glory of Christ, isn't it? That God the Son despite his eternal, independent, supremely powerful nature, became a helpless embryo attached to an umbilical cord in a simple girl in the Middle East. That the God who created and sustains all things was born in a filthy cow shed and was breastfed. He appeared in a body. God the Son became flesh. This is an astounding mystery. And it's important, I believe, that we think clearly about this mystery. We'll never fully understand it, but there are markers that the New Testament gives us that indicate something of the reality of the Incarnation. We learn that the church in the New Testament understood that Jesus became fully man. Paul will go on in chapter 4 to speak to the church of the danger of straying into doctrinal error. And here we have a confession of what the early church believed about Jesus Christ. That he was fully, fully man. You see, he appeared in a body does not mean that he was some kind of spiritual apparition. This was a physical incarnation. God became flesh. He became fully man with all that that involves. And the New Testament again and again emphasizes this reality. John, who spoke of the transcendence of God and the Word who was with God in the beginning, the Word through whom all things were created, says... In his letter in 1 John 1, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched. God became a tangible human being. The unapproachable God became flesh. He who was high and lifted up was suddenly there at the meal table tangible, approachable, could be listened to and seen and physically felt. Not as an apparition, but as a real, authentic man. Not God in a physical shell, but God taking upon Himself humanity and all that that involves. A human psyche, a human emotional life, human reason, human imagination. This is the glory of Christ, that he appeared in a body. However, it doesn't mean in some way that he ceased to be God. In some mysterious way, Christ chose for a season not to access the privileges of his attributes as God. He willingly and deliberately took on the limitations of humanity in a real way. And yet, he remained at the same time fully God. Colossians 1.19 says, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Colossians 2.9 says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And so while Christ entered fully into an authentic experience of humanity, He did not at the same time cease to be the God who ruled and reigned over all things. The incarnation did not leave a gap in the Godhead. Peter Lewis says, though he became what he was not, he did not cease to be what he was. These are confusing, confounding realities, aren't they? But it's important that this is our confession as it was their confession that this is our conviction as it was their conviction. We believe that he was fully man, and yet we believe that he remained fully God. And yet, it does not mean that he became two separate persons. He retained his Godhood, he fully took upon himself manhood, And yet at the same time, he remained a single, undivided person. It's awesome. Simultaneously, he experienced in real terms what it meant to be a real, living, breathing human being, with all the limitations that that involved. While simultaneously, he existed as God the Son, ruling and reigning over everything, existing in every atom of the universe. And yet he remained a single, undivided person. At one and the same time, knowing all things, about all things that are knowable. And as a small boy in Israel, learning to read and write, and he's learning his Hebrew alphabet. At the same time, ruling and reigning in supreme and infinite power over all nations, and yet at the same time, suckling at his mother's breast as he lived in utter dependency as an infant in Israel. He was fully God and fully man, and yet he remained a single, undivided person. This is a great mystery, isn't it? This is the glory of the Christ that we love and worship, and that we think about particularly at this time at, Christ, at Christmas. A glory incarnate. Not only that, it was a glory glimpsed. Paul goes on in his second statement to say that although he appeared in a body, he was vindicated by the Spirit. The incarnation describes something of the historical, physical entrance of God into our world. How despite being God, he experienced the limitations of humanity. He laid aside his majesty. And yet, although there was a concealing of that majesty, during his life and ministry, there were glimpses of that glory. There were insights that the Spirit gave into his true identity. He was vindicated by the Spirit. At his baptism, John saw the Spirit coming on him like a dove. And of course, there was the voice of the Father affirming the reality That this was God's Son. There were miraculous signs. There was water that was turned into wine. There was the walking on the water. There was the stilling of a storm with a single word. There were all kinds of signs and wonders that were vindications of the identity of this carpenter from Nazareth. A miraculous catch of fish. These were glimpses Of his Godhood. John in his gospel refers to them in these ways. Describing the turning of the water into wine. He writes this in John 2.11. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. He thus revealed his glory. And his disciples put their faith in him. And so despite being rejected by the religious authorities as a fake He was vindicated by the Spirit. Again and again and again, the Holy Spirit bore witness and testimony to his true identity. And signs and wonders provided glimpses into the glory of this carpenter from Nazareth. And those who believed put their faith in him. And yet the most undeniable vindication of who he was, occurred in the resurrection. You see, at the age of 33, he was arrested, tried and sentenced to public execution. He was killed on a cross and buried in a tomb. And then on the third day, there was a massive vindication of the Spirit when that lifeless dead body was raised from the grave. Hallelujah. This event of the cross and the resurrection was, of course, a pivotal event. It's why the New Testament centers in on it and why, as you read through the Gospels, the time begins to slow down as it approaches the events leading up to and around the cross. The death and resurrection of Jesus is the central event of the New Testament. And the resurrection describes the vindication of the Spirit, of everything that Jesus claimed to be and everything that we understand that he was doing on the cross. You see, the New Testament speaks of the cross as a transaction, doesn't it? It wasn't just a tragic accident where a well-meaning teacher was misunderstood and maligned and crucified. The New Testament reveals that behind that was God's plan of salvation unfolding. That there was a transaction occurring. That on the cross, Christ the sinless one was paying the penalty for your sin and for my sin. There was a check being written as he was settling our account before God. And then on the third day, as he was raised to life... God himself signed the check. He was vindicated by the Spirit. The transaction was complete and guaranteed. Everything that he had claimed to be and everything that he had claimed to achieve was underwritten by God himself as the power of the Spirit entered the body of Christ and raised him up triumphant from the grave. Paul says that through the spirit of holiness, he was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. In 1 Corinthians 11, he says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And so the resurrection is a glorious vindication of the reality of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for us on the cross. Amen? This is the glory of Christ. He appeared in a body. He was vindicated by the Spirit. Third statement Paul makes is that he was seen by angels. I've called this a glory adored. You see, the statements so far speak of something of the humanity of Christ and they major in on how He has become approachable to us and tangible to us. Although there were glimpses of His true identity, He became flesh. He became fully man. The ministry of Jesus, where glimpses of His glory were seen and He was vindicated by the Spirit. But here, Paul creates an interesting paradox he said that he appeared as man and yet here he says he was also seen by angels the angels indicate the realm of the heavens where God himself is perpetually adored as the object of the angels devotion and affection often we find in biblical descriptions of heaven the presence of adoring angels Look at some verses in Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, 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 Holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. And then in Revelation 5, verse 6 and 7, another glimpse into the heavens. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And then if you move down to verse 11, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And so the heavens is a place where the angels adore God. And Paul says here that he, he who appeared in a body, was seen by the angels. The Christ who appeared in flesh is the adored object of heaven. Not only is he fully man and therefore approachable and tangible and fully able to sympathize with our experience of humanity, But he is also fully God in all the majesty of of that being. He bears the earthly nature of man as well as the heavenly nature of God. He enters into the pain of sin-affected humanity and yet he is adored by the creatures of heaven itself. This statement then declares something of the glory of who Christ is in his divinity. God the Son was and is fully God. This carpenter from Nazareth is the one before whom the seraphim hide their faces and cover their feet. This is something, of course, that is clearly and repeatedly taught through the New Testament. The Bible teaches us that Jesus is not just some religious teacher. He's not just a guru figure or a kind of Gandhian personality within history. He is God Himself. John 1 verse 1 to 3 says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made. Colossians one fifteen to seventeen, by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And Hebrews one verse three, the sun is the radiance of God's glory, and the exact representation of his being. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. It's wonderful, isn't it? He who appeared in a body was seen by angels. Fully man and yet fully God. This is the Jesus that we love and adore and worship and confess. Statement number four by Paul is that he was preached among the nations. I've called this a glory to be proclaimed. You see, this Jesus, who is fully man and at the same time fully God, whose identity was confirmed and vindicated by the Spirit, who paid the penalty for sin and was raised on the third day, is not just a national Messiah. He's not just a small figure within a certain race in the Middle East. But he is, according to the New Testament, the Saviour of the whole earth. And this glory that has appeared in the flesh and that is seen by angels is not something that is to be kept private and insular. It's a glory that's to be proclaimed. Paul says here that he was preached among the nations. Jesus Christ is... And His glory is not something that is to be kept as a closely guarded secret. It's something to be declared among the nations of the earth. And we find in the New Testament that that is exactly what happened. You see, the disciples, having seen this glory, having heard and touched Him, as John says, having seen the miracles that He did and had insights into His true identity, having witnessed the cross And the resurrected body of Jesus were empowered by the Spirit and propelled into mission among the nations. They didn't stand around gazing into heaven, waiting for the glory to return. They went everywhere proclaiming what they had seen and heard. They began in Jerusalem and then in Judea and then on to Samaria and to the very ends of the earth in their generation proclaiming the glory of this Christ, who was fully man and fully God, who had paid the penalty for sin and been raised on the third day. They realized that this glory of God becoming flesh was an event that had a significance for all nations and for all peoples. They realized that they carried a responsibility for proclaiming the glory of these things and these realities. They realize what Paul wrote in Romans 10:14 when he said, How then can they call on the one whom they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? Mission is the proclamation of the glories that are contained in these statements. To every tribe and to every tongue and to every nation. John Piper writes a wonderful description of mission. He says, mission exists because worship does not. And the goal of mission is to create communities that have seen and encountered the glory of this Christ, who is fully man and fully God. Communities that are caught up in the glory of this Christ. Who have turned from worshipping pale imitations of God. Artificial representations of God. To encountering and engaging with the reality of who God truly is. In Christ Jesus and through Christ Jesus. We find in Revelation 7 the result of this proclamation of the glory of Christ among the nations and the fulfillment of this mission as one great multinational community gathers before the throne. And John says he looked and there before him was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. These events contained in these statements and these mysteries, they are to be enjoyed by us and reveled in by us. That they're also to be proclaimed by us to the world around us that has not understood and has not seen the glory of who Jesus is. It's incredibly sad, isn't it, that in a few days from now, people are going to spend so much time and energy focused on an event in their calendar without truly understanding the significance of what that represents. Well, we've seen it. We've seen Him. We've understood Him. We've encountered His glory. We've understood that it's about God becoming man and laying down His life for our sin. These events and these mysteries, they are to be adored But they are also to be proclaimed. And that's why Paul says here that he was preached among the nations. These are glories for us to communicate. Whether it's on the farmer's market or in our carol service, as we're going to be doing in a couple of weeks' time, whether it's through the Alpha course or at the school gates, our mission is to proclaim the glory of this Christ, fully man and fully God. Not just in the familiarity of our own culture and community, but among the nations also and to the ends of the earth. This is the glory of Christ, a glory to be proclaimed. The fifth statement is believed on in the world, and I've called this a glory received. This follows on from what Paul has been talking about because it describes the intended response to the proclamation of this glory. There is a universal proclamation that we have a responsibility to fulfil and yet there is a very personal response that God produces in the heart of those who hear this proclamation. He was believed on in the world. The reality of who he is and what he has done is embraced and received by faith. Faith in who Christ is and faith in what he has done and achieved. That's a very personal response. He suffered on the cross and was raised to life for your sin and for my sin. But the way that we access the benefit of what Christ has done is through believing on him. We put our confidence and our faith in him And in his work on our behalf. Faith is not just intellectually agreeing with the facts. Faith is a life decision to surrender the control of your life to this Christ that we've been hearing about and looking at. It's not about bringing Jesus into the passenger seat of your life. And allowing him to make a few suggestions en route within life. It's about saying, Lord, you take the steering wheel of my life. I trust you to drive. Take control of my life. I put faith in you. I believe that you are fully man and fully God. I believe that you paid the penalty for my sin, and so now I surrender myself to you. I believe on you. You may be here this morning, and you may never have made that personal response. I want to encourage you this morning to do that. To believe on the Christ who became flesh for you. Who entered this world in order to pay the price for your sin and for my sin. You can do that this morning. We're going to give opportunity for you to do that after we've, we've looked at the word together. There's a great mystery here because as we believe on him, we receive him into our lives. You see, the one the angels adore and cover their faces before when we make that life decision to surrender to Him, He comes into our lives by the power of His Spirit. Paul says elsewhere, this is another great mystery. Christ in us. The eternal, self-sufficient God who fully sympathizes with our humanity enters into our own lives and our own experience by the power of His Spirit as we believe on Him. This is the glory of Christ. He was believed on in the world. We're going to look at one final thing and then we're going to spend time responding in worship. Paul ends here by saying he was taken up in glory. And he ends with a note of triumph. I've called this a glory triumphant. These statements reflect key realities about who Christ is and key events in history. The reality that he's fully man and fully God. The events of the incarnation and the resurrection. But we know through the Gospels, as we read on, that for six weeks after being raised from the dead, Jesus met with his disciples and his followers. He invested truth in them and he encouraged them to be expectant to receive the power of the Holy Spirit. And then after six weeks, we read at the end of the Gospels how He gathered His disciples on a hillside in Galilee and gave them one final reminder of their mission to proclaim Him among the nations. We read in the accounts in the Gospels of how Jesus, as He reaches out His hands to bless them, He begins to be lifted up from that hillside, up into the heavens and disappears In the clouds, it must have been an amazing thing to see. It describes the event of the ascension of Christ. As having completed His mission on earth, He returns triumphant to be with the Father. Having taken on Himself flesh and paid the penalty of sin, He returns triumphantly to the Father. And the Bible describes that as an event of great triumph. In Ephesians 4, I think Matt read some of those verses earlier, Paul quotes from Psalm 68 which describes a a victory procession. It would have been a familiar scene, the return of a triumphant king who has left his homeland to fight a foreign war and has achieved victory and has gained plunder. And then after the victory is won, returns to the sanctuary with the procession, with the plunder in his train. Crowds lining the streets, music and celebration, a serious party as the triumphant king returns. Well, here we read of how he ascended in glory, having won the battle in this foreign land, he returns to the Father as a triumphant king. And Paul ends these six statements on this note of undeniable triumph. This Jesus, who is both man and God, who has dealt once and for all with sin, who is proclaimed among the nations, who is received into believing hearts, he has ascended in glory. And now sits at the right hand of God, reigning triumphantly for all eternity to come. Hallelujah. This is the glory of Christ. Let's stand up together. I'm going to ask the worship band to come. And what we're going to do is they get themselves together. I'd like us, again, to read aloud these statements together. And to lead that, let that lead us into a time of worship and praise as we take hold of these things in our hearts and Sing them and declare them back to God. Carry your Bible. Get your Bible in front of you. And uh, let's read these statements nice and loud together. Let's declare it with conviction. It doesn't have to be a mechanical thing. Yeah, we're declaring verbally truth and reality of the glory of who Christ is and what he's done for us. So we'll read from verse 16. Okay, nice and loud. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Shall we do that one more time together? Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Let's lift our voices together and let's just praise this wonderful Jesus.